Hey everybody, it's Ben Kaznoka, partner at Village Global, and this is our podcast where we talk to world-leading experts about all things tech and venture capital. Hello, and welcome to Venture Stories from Village Global. I'm Ann Duane, and delighted today to welcome Deep Nishar, Managing Director and Management Committee Member at General Catalyst in Silicon Valley, where he leads the Growth Equity Fund. Prior to General Catalyst, Deep served as the Senior Managing Partner at the SoftBank Vision Fund. Before his investing roles, Deep spent more than 20 years building businesses, and he shares stories of teaming with the likes of Eric Schmidt at Google and Reid Hoffman at LinkedIn to build products that truly change the course of humanity. Deep, welcome to Village Global Venture Stories podcast. Thank you, Anne. Pleasure to be here. Let's get right into it because you have very actionable insights for product leaders and founders. When should a startup hire their first product manager? I'll make an assumption, which is most, if not all, startups today are founded by people who have great technology and product insights already. So it's not... They are, they are not being started by people who don't understand their customers or the products they are building. And if that is the case, I probably would wait to hire the first outside product person uh, until after product market fit. And the reason for that is the period between inception and product market fit is very, very messy. It's very fast-paced because you learn new things in the morning and you change things in the afternoon and you try them out in the evening. And then again, the cycle starts again the next day. And that, you know, that takes a special kind of uh, character. It takes a special kind of disposition. And usually founders have that more than somebody you would hire. That is a great insight, especially um, we hear a lot from founders who say they really can't hire a product person because great product people at that stage start companies. They don't want to join companies. Absolutely. Right. And if, If you don't know what the product looks like, why should someone come in as an employee? They should be your co-founder. Right. When you reach product market fit, and as a founder, you're thinking about your first product hire, what should you be looking for? Uh, So, you know, there there is a shorthand that I use for uh, what a great product manager looks like. And that is, they should have the brain of an engineer, the heart of a designer, and the speech of a diplomat. Uh, I, I think that, Getting all three is hard, but you should absolutely shoot for it. And you see that greatness in some of the best product minds uh, all around us. In addition to that, for a startup in the early stages, you also want someone who's like very, very comfortable and even almost thrive in ambiguity. Because startup life, uh, and you know, I've experienced it having started a company, is not a very defined path. And that for some is torture and for some that is the adventure and so you want people who love that adventure of you know having something different happen to them every morning they like wake up bright and early in the morning and they're like okay what will this day bring for me not that i have the day all planned out for you and that characteristic one should be looking for amazing and how do you find that or screen for it or what's the interview process to help qualify those folks I think the best interview process is honestly not to ask the people what they would do, but really dig into what they have done. So if you're looking for adventure uh, or ability to deal with ambiguity, you know, 
everything else being equal, lean towards the person who decided to take a gap year and went backpacking across, you know, pick your favorite location around the world with like no understanding of what tomorrow would bring. They would be totally okay with ambiguity and they would be totally okay with a sense of adventure. Don't look for the person who, you know, went through a very defined path. You know, they were top of class. They did the five activities. They were on the varsity football team. All amazing characteristics, but they may be more appropriate for your company a little bit later where they can bring order and discipline, which would be the dominant characteristics you look for versus uh, a love for ambiguity and adventure. Uh, the I second love that. I would look, yeah. And the second thing I would look for, and which we haven't talked about yet, is... You know, I have a big belief that the first 50 employees that you hire completely define the culture of your company and look for people who resonate with your sensibilities, who have a similar outlook towards life as you do, who believe uh, in your philosophy of how companies should be run, how communities should be formed. Also, uh, as a result of that, look for diversity of thought early and look for that diversity and equity in your composition of your teams very early. So if all you hire, the first 10 people, if you hire, they look like you, the next 100 people will look like you. And that is not going to be a great company in the end. Right. What do they call it? Uh, diversity debt and uh, kind of like tech debt, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, <laughs> yes, except debt diversity makes- debt is very hard to overcome. Tech debt can be overcome. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get right into that then. Tech debt is really results from prioritizing speed over perfect code. And how do you think about overcoming it or dealing with it? Yeah, actually, I would modify what you said. You're absolutely right that it happens because you prioritize speed over perfect code, but it also happens because the definition of perfection changes over time. So what we believe is perfect today may look very imperfect uh, five years from now or even six months from now, depending on you know what, what that perfection was about. So I think that rather than trying to avoid technical debt, which many people think of, uh, one should basically think about it as a fact of life. You know, our closets get cluttered no matter how clean we are. Our tables get cluttered no matter how clean we are. Uh, And we have to periodically do that spring cleaning. The first place where technical debt occurs, and which I think you should occur that technical debt, is when we are getting to MVP on your product. Uh, There is no point. Uh, writing the best possible code and the most like amazingly elegant program for your product if the product is going to fail. So, you you know, this is where move fast and break things is actually not a bad maxim up to the point that you get to your MVP. Once you get to your MVP, now this is where the discipline comes in. Let's say the product takes off in a big way. You're now like, okay, I can't take the time to like now rewrite it in a great way because I will lose my early edge in the market uh, so I need to keep going, but you could have built it, I don't know, on Ruby on Rails. <laughs> like that would be a bad idea because that's not going to scale. So now you have to start instituting processes uh, that basically say, okay, how do I deal with this so that I don't accumulate it to a point of it becoming disastrous? Uh, you know, th- there's a great example uh, that will take our listeners back maybe 20 plus years of Friendster. Uh, Friendster was one of the original social networks that not many people will remember. And in the year 2003, they saw amazing growth. Like their DAUs went from, you know, maybe like 1 million to 20 or 30 or 40 in a matter of six months. Uh, That's phenomenal growth, no matter which time in the technology cycle we can think of. 
Unfortunately, what happened is as the users grew that much, the infrastructure couldn't keep up. And as a result, they had to spend pretty much all of 2004 revamping the infrastructure. And meanwhile, MySpace came in and completely overtook them. And so we today, you know, Friendster, unfortunately, has become a footnote in the annals of tech history. Uh, while, you know, things like MySpace had a much longer run. And then obviously, LinkedIn and Facebook and others came, came after them. So tech debt can be really fatal to the company. And what uh, one of the maxims I try to use is you build for 1x, you engineer for 10x, and you architect for 100x. And that gives you a path of at least the scaling part of tech debt that you should not incur. The other things that one should do are, like I'll give some tactical uh, strategies on how to deal with tech debt. Uh, so Steve Kaufer at TripAdvisor, uh, and you know, I had the privilege to serve on his board for several years, uh, he would actually use the following technique. He would say that once the product has shipped or we've you know, done the release, you take one or two weeks after that and you basically say the release is not complete yet. And you take those two weeks to go back and clean up whatever you know, shortcuts you may have taken. So that gave you a cycle. It's almost like you know, you are every three or four months, you take a week and all you do is clean your closet. And that's a good way to sort of make sure that things don't accumulate on you. Uh, what we used to do at Google, and this was started by Jen Fitzpatrick, one of our uh, you know, then engineering managers, now one of the senior engineering executives in the company, it initially started as one week a year, then kind of became like once a quarter uh, exercise where we would do bug bashes. So, you know, the product management team would like spend a few weeks prior, prioritizing everything, triaging, deciding which bugs were important to be taken care of. And the engineering team would stop new feature development and just clean out old bugs. And that way you kept recycling the system. So here are, you know, these are some of the techniques. So what I would say about tech debt is one, uh, don't try to avoid it because of the fact of life. Two, make sure that you don't accumulate fatal tech debt, which are infrastructure and scaling related. And to do that is to really, uh, you know, build for 1x, engineer for 10x, architect for 100x. And the third is always, depending on the culture of your company, institute practices so that you are constantly cleaning up the smaller kinds of debt so that you never get to a point where it becomes so big that it becomes a very daunting task. I love that. And also you're engaging the whole team, right, in the bug fixes and the, you know, perfecting the release or something like that versus relegating that to another team or something like that. So everybody's totally, thinking. yeah. So one, that actually brings up a very important point, Anne, which is, you know, many people, they find the junior most people on their teams and say, oh, you go fix bugs. Uh, and they're like, oh, this way you'll get to know the code base. And, you know, it's like not important. But the subtext really is that it's not really important enough for me to do it. Like I'll get some junior person to do it. That, in my opinion, is dumb on two counts. One, bugs are like, you need a lot of context to solve a bug in a right way and to clean up code in a right way. So by giving it to a junior person, you're actually now increasing the amount of time it will take to fix something that the person who actually introduced the bug or understands the code base really well could fix very quickly. The second is there is no better way to demoralize someone than to say, you just take out the trash for the next 30 days. 100%. Oh, okay, good. Good leadership lesson, number one. <laughs> um, great. And as you think about being a, a leader in a company, a founder, a CEO, 
uh, or even just a senior executive in a company, um, when you're hiring product leaders and product managers, how do you thread the needle between empowering them and ensuring the vision that you might have or the insights you have manifest in the product? You know, and I, I think that is like the most important topic that most founders spend like no more than 30 seconds thinking about. And I think that, that creates so much angst and so much turnover uh, in leadership ranks in organizations. There are many poor ways to do it. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll uh, share a story of a good way to do it. And this is a personal story because this is how Reed brought me into LinkedIn as the head of product. You know, if, if you know Reed, like he's an amazingly thoughtful person. Uh, he's very strategic and he's very self-aware. So we spent several months, almost a year before I joined the company and we would spend time pretty much every weekend for two to three hours just talking about various things. A lot of times it was about things he was facing at LinkedIn, the product, how we would jointly problem solve things. Uh, but also about life, our philosophy. So this goes back to the culture question. You know, we were sort of understanding each other's rhythms. We were trying to understand, you know, how each one of us thought about life, which then obviously percolates into how we think about our work. Uh, so we really got simpatico. The second thing he did was when I came on board uh, and we got to this understanding through those multiple months of working together, is he said, okay, you are in charge of the strategy and the execution. So we are very clear what my role was. And he said, I'm here to help you in any way I can. Now that's not right or wrong. You can pick, and I'll, I'll talk about a different model uh, in a few minutes. You can pick what it is, but the important thing here is that we had clarity between the two of us. The third thing he said, you know, being such an astute student of uh, human behavior that Reed is, he said, look, it's guaranteed that when people don't like something you suggest, they'll want to come to me. And my job is to make sure that I don't get in your way by letting people come and do that. They're coming with the best of intentions. They know me. They, they have topics they want to discuss and they have a better relationship with me over a period of time than they would have with you initially. So I'm going to take effectively a sabbatical for the next three months. So I let you settle into your new job. I'm available to you anytime you want me, but anytime somebody else comes to me with a product related topic, I'm going to send them to you. So he was very clear in defining boundaries with everybody in the company and give me the opportunity to settle in and, you know, plant my roots and really have the company and the team understand me and what I was trying to bring to the table. The next thing we did was whenever he was in town, we would always take two to three hours a week and discuss what was going on in the product team. And this wasn't about him trying to oversee me. This was about him trying to be helpful and offer help and opinion. And even though we knew it implicitly, he would be very explicit and he would say, look, this is my opinion. This is how I would think about it. Ultimately, it's your decision and your call. And I don't think in the six years that we were working together at LinkedIn, uh, I ever took one of his suggestions and said, okay, that's a dumb idea because, you know, there are no dumb ideas. Maybe we morphed them, we made them better together, we discussed them, but we always knew what we were doing, why we were doing it. And he did that, but with full empowerment. That worked really well for me because I'm a very autonomous person. And he understood that through our conversation before I started with the company. 
And he had to take an enormous leap of faith to trust me and my judgment and my abilities, both strategic and operational, to say, I will leave LinkedIn in a better place than I found it, right? And that was a huge leap of faith. And that's a huge leap of faith for any founder because there is no way that somebody who comes into the company understands their baby that much better than they, they would, right? But, uh, but that's, that's the price of progress and scale, if you will, right? If you consider that a price, or that could be, we could say that's the benefit of progress and scale when you bring somebody else in. That to me is a happy path. There are many ways in which this thing can go wrong, right? You can start entertaining people who come to you. You can start, you know, even without meaning to undermine the new product leaders by, uh, you know, imposing your opinion in large public settings, one-on-one uh, -on -one with individuals, et cetera. And that sort of starts eroding the ability of the new person to do their jobs. Uh, Drew Houston, uh, so now moving from like my personal story to, you know, maybe a little bit more framework-like thinking, uh, Drew Houston has a very good phrase for it. He says, like, you know, think about who you want. Do you want a poet or do you want a librarian as a product leader? Uh, because if you have been a product-driven founder, you know, you may want a librarian. You may still have the ideas. You don't have the time or the inclination to go deploy them in large ways across an organization, across multiple products. So you want someone who's willing to take your ideas and then deploy them. I would not be a great librarian. Okay, uh, so I, I know who I am and who I am not. Some people would be great librarians and they would be very happy being that. So they are operational product leaders and their job is to take that idea and really deploy it in a big way. Think of it as like being the chief of staff to the president. It's a very important role, but it's not being the president. Some people want poets. They're like, look, you know, I want to now focus more on customers. Or I want to focus more on, you know, the public market. So I want to focus more as a founder. And they want someone who can think of the strategy and operationalize it. Uh, and that's really a combination of poet and librarian. But spending the time, having the awareness of, as a founder, who you want, what the organization needs at that particular point in time, and then really empowering that person to do that and being very clear about it up front and giving them both the room and the air cover to do their job becomes very important. So it's actually the first six to 12 months after hiring that new product leader is a very important and a fragile time in, in the history of that company. And the founder actually has to do more work, not less work in order to make that successful. But because in the end, over a period of time, that pays massive dividends for the company. Think about the frameworks and how, uh, you know, what it is that you want, what are you willing to give up? And uh, that self-awareness and that thinking. And what I would also suggest is the founders don't do this reflection on their own. Like they should talk to people who work with them. They should talk to their boards. They should talk to their closest advisors and say, who do you think I am? Like, will I be able to let go? What kinds of people work better with me? And sometimes that awareness comes through conversation. Absolutely. It's very hard to see your own blind spots, right? So it's great of to course. have that cabinet. At General Catalyst at, and here at Village Global, we back founders with really planetary ambitions, right? And they're serving customers around the world. What have you learned about internationalizing a product? So, you know, again, it goes back to the maxim of building for 1x, engineering for 10x, architecting for 100x, because everyone should have global ambition. Like if you're building an amazing product, uh, that's going to change and impact people's lives everywhere. It should be a global product. 
I think there's a difference between internationalization and localization. People sort of conflate the two. The two together get you globalization uh, or a global product. Internationalization is really the technical way in which you enable a product to work anywhere in the world. So this would mean things like, uh, you know, writing it in Unicode uh, so that you can do right to left, left to right. Uh, you can have metric and uh, non-metric systems being represented in your product. Uh, you can, you know, easily translate it uh, from one language to another. So that's all about internationalization. And there are really good now tools and techniques how you would do it. You know, for prolific consumer products, uh, you know, there were historically really good techniques and innovations like Facebook did, where they were able to crowdsource the translations of their product in many, many languages and make it available outside of English. Uh, whereas at Google, we use professional translators because we didn't have a huge body of content. At the same time, we wanted to make sure that people had, you know, professional experiences when, when they use the Google product in other languages. So that's internationalization. And I think that's a reasonably mechanical piece of work, but it's a piece of work that you need to do. Then there's a notion of localization and that actually is a lot harder. And the reason it is harder is if you're building a consumer product, uh, you need to understand the cultural nuances of whichever country or language you're deploying that product in. So I'll, I'll give you an example from the Google days. When I was managing Google's product portfolio for Asia Pacific, I saw a very curious thing happen where the Korean uh, Google products were not getting a lot of uptake. Uh, so I went to Seoul and we did a bunch of user interviews with the local teams there. And one thing kept coming up where people said, but it's still a work in progress. Like Google.com is not a finished product, right? Like it's in beta. And you're like, what are you talking about? This has been here for like five years. It turns out that when you have a page which just has a box which says, you know, and which says like search and everything else is empty. Culturally in Korea, they think like it's unfinished because what happened to the rest of the page? And it's very easy to figure out when you like go uh, stand at a street corner uh, in Seoul or, you know, like the famous, like the mnemonic I would give you is the famous Tom Hanks scene from Lost in Translation where he is in Shibuya, uh, and he's like seeing all the billboards flashing around him and all the cars going and people like going like crazy. And he's like, wow, I'm lost. Well, it turns out that being lost there is actually reality in those lives. So if you don't have a web page that is blinking like Times Square, people think it's still unfinished. So <laughs> we had to think about how to give that perception of a finished product in the Korean cultural context while still not cluttering the page, right? And that takes that takes localization, that takes understanding of local cultural nuances. So that takes a lot of work. Eric Schmidt would famously tell us that, look, people sitting in Mountain View are not gonna be able to build amazing products for people sitting in Bangalore. Like you need a team in Bangalore to create a consumer product for that, uh, you know, that culture and those people. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. So really, you don't, you know, not every company can have teams everywhere, but you at least need to understand the cultural nuances. So that's one part on a consumer product. If you're building, say, a tax product or a workforce management product, you need to understand local regulations, local compliance rules. You, you know, uh, you can't mess those things up because you could run afoul of laws. Right, like GDPR now is a household word. When we were building products at Google and LinkedIn, those rules were still being 
uh, crafted, but it impacted the way we build products in a massive, massive way. So as you think about globalization, those are also the aspects that you need to really understand. And having people, you know, product managers who've done it, actually hiring them is worth their weight in gold because they can really help you get over the, the traps that it's very easy to fall into. Uh, if you don't understand the local regulation, the local culture, the local customs and compliance issues that may come from having your product uh, being used around the world. And have you been involved in the decisions of when to go cross-border and which markets to pursue? Uh, all the time. <laughs> so, you know, at Google as well as at LinkedIn, because again, both products had very global ambition. Uh, and in many different ways. So, uh, you know, Eric would famously tell us that, you know, if a sheep farmer in Mongolia wants to advertise on Google and pay us in sheep, we should be willing to take sheep and convert it into US dollars, okay? Uh, and that was in the context of building the right payment infrastructure, forms of payment, methods of payment, you know, which are all very nuanced things and very, very complicated and difficult to build. At Google, we actually had a very interesting uh, rubric that one of my colleagues, uh, Adam Smith, who ran uh, all the operational side of international at one point in time, and he worked with Cheryl on that, uh, came up with, where he said, let's get the top 30 languages uh, that get us 98% of the internet population. So that was a way of prioritizing, because I think that's where you were going, saying, okay, how do you prioritize, right? What do you do? Uh, so usually you know the access or the decision variables that people are trying to optimize around are reach of the product and commercialization of the product and understanding the surface area of which parts of the world get you the optimal point amongst those two uh, becomes an important decision criteria and then you overlay on that like the difficulty level of doing certain things so you know if you have to really take a lot of payments in uh, Latin America, but in Brazil, like Boleto is a very difficult uh, form of payment that you have to interact with. You may then prioritize that a little bit later, even though it may be a very important country for you, because it will take you more work to get Boleto working than getting like five other Latin American countries working for you. And is working with a distributed team that's doing localization similar to how a founder might think about that first product leader in terms of empowerment or any lessons learned there on managing those teams? Yeah, and uh, some pretty important ones, but if there's one that stands uh, out amongst all of them is really understanding the state of product management in any given geography. Uh, the level of training and abundance of product management talent in those geographies. So when uh, I was chartered to go build out uh, our product portfolio in Asia, one of the things Eric said is you need to have local teams, you know, as, as we talked about earlier. And he, he had a strong belief, and a right belief, I believe, uh, in doing so. Now, it turns out that when you're building organized technical organizations and product organizations in India and China and Korea and Japan and Australia in 2005, they didn't have a huge product culture in those countries. And, you know, initially our thought was we would hire, uh, you know, strong technical talent in those countries and then they would become the product talent 
And that didn't quite work out. So what eventually ended up working out for us was taking experienced product leaders from the US who were trained in Mountain View and empowering them to become leaders in those countries. Uh, and that worked out beautifully because we just needed, you know, what happened was uh, it brought three things to the table. One, you know, they were trained in classic product management here. So then they could go and hire a lot of APMs and, you know, young people who were hungry and wanted to learn and train them the right way and train them the way Google would want to do product management. The second thing they brought was they had a lot of relationships back to the mothership, which is important because when you have a distributed team, your code base is not necessarily distributed. So you may need to make changes to the core code base and you can't do that without relationships, right? You can't just like throw PRDs over the wall and expect someone to be working. So that was a very important function. And the third thing, they could do was they could bridge that cultural gap, right? Of what that local country and the local user base needed with the way we thought about what the product would look like over a period of time. And that was also an important learning back into the core organization in Mountain View to say, okay, this is what a global Google user base looks like and wants from us. Uh, so that worked out fabulously for us. And, you know, many of those product leaders have gone on to like, you know, start companies and become very, very successful uh, in what they've done. In China, in particular, uh, one of the founders of Xiaomi and one of and the main founder of Pinduoduo were early product managers on our Google China team. Amazing! What an amazing influence! And knowing what you know now, both from building and operating yourself, but also investing in amazing companies, what would you prioritize today? in building a world-class organization for product if you were starting a company today? One of the things I would say is that as your organization grows, uh, the truly world-class product leaders uh, not only build great teams and build great products, but they build a great product operating system for you that will outlast not just them and any organization, but will endure the test of time. And you know, we talk about operating systems when it comes to compute, right? And it is the most important component because everything runs on that. Similarly, uh, you know, having a product leader who spends the time and invests the time to come up with product principles uh, that captures the ethos of the company and its perspective towards its users and customers, uh, who then builds an operating system on top of it, which is about how do you hire the right people who follow those principles and enhance them? How do you uh, provide career progression to them? What are the rituals of your team uh, that you know, embody these characteristics uh, and bring uh, you know, diversity of thought that are inclusive, that are creating uh, you know, the very best products that are disciplined, uh, where you're thinking about success and failure of a product a priori. So you're making rational and disciplined and rigorous decisions versus un, you know, emotional decisions over time. These are all components of an operating system uh, and the very best product leaders build them. Uh, I, I would say that you know, my colleague Marissa Meyer at Google, she was amazing at this. It's like building the product that is the product. Right. The product yeah. for the product. Yes. What is the product for the product? <laughs> exactly right. That's a great way of saying it, Anne. Oh, great. Let's talk about your role today at General Catalyst. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you uh, spending your time and what are you looking to invest in? So I 
have always tried to hitch my career uh, and invest my uh, my professional time on trends that I believe will change the course of humanity over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and I'm choosing the words very carefully, uh, changing the course of humanity. So I joined Google in 2003 when everyone thought consumer was dead, right? It was after the big dot-com bust. People thought like, you know, dot-com was a passing phase, you know, Eight years or six years after that, I joined LinkedIn when nobody understood what social networking was. And people were like, why would you like go from search, which is, you know, just beginning and is amazing and representing the internet to like this thing where like people get together and like talk about inane stuff. And you're like, no, if you've seen what's happening in China and Japan and Korea right now, this is where people will spend most of their time uh, in the new digital era. You know, 12 years ago, I got really interested in co computational biology because I saw this famous chart, now famous chart at that time, it was a pretty obscure chart of the cost of sequencing a human genome, which had gone from $3 billion for the first human genome to about $2,000 12 years ago, and it's about $100 today. And as an electrical engineer, intimately familiar with Moore's law, and what that did for my profession and honestly the world, like, the, you know, if we roll back the world 50 years, it looked very different. We would not be able to have this conversation because it's based on having semiconductor chips, right? Uh, which is the building block of everything around us. But that curve, which is steeper, the cost of uh, sequencing the human genome and how fast that was dropping, it's steeper than Moore's law. And I looked at that and I'm like, wow, that's going to change the course of humanity over the next 50, 100 years. And I need to learn about it. So I started taking classes, online courses, read books, became friends with you know, some of the best academics in that space and paid tuition in the form of investing in early stage companies in that space and really got to understand it. So I love to learn. I'm intellectually curious and I want to uh, spend my time on trends that I believe are changing the course of humanity as we know it. So what are those trends as I see them today? Uh, definitely computational biology. So I spend quite a bit of time uh, in that space and invest quite a bit, uh, both in early stage and later stage companies. Uh, in software, where I've been involved for over 20 years, I believe that we are in the middle of yet another inflection point. We started with client server software 20 plus years ago. Uh, then we went to you know, cloud-based uh, application software. Then came the whole API economy, which was a company I started, but 10 years, little too early. And as you know, Anne, it's not about what you start, it's also about when you start a particular company. So, uh, you know, learned that lesson the hard way. And from the API economy, we came to uh, now an era of open source, where not only is software in the cloud, but it's also the code base is widely available because that's how you build the best possible software. And you can still make money uh, doing that. So when Linux first came out, people were like, okay, it's free. How do you make money? And then you got Red Hat. <laughs> and now people have learned that wasn't a one-off thing. So open source is another place where I'm spending a lot of my time. And I got very fortunate at LinkedIn. We were one of the pioneers in terms of big companies open sourcing some of our best infrastructure software, right? Kafka is one of it. Apache Pino is another one, which now the company Star Tree focuses on and several others. Uh, along with it. So that's the second place where I'm spending uh, quite a bit of my time. And the third place where I'm spending a bunch of my time is really around the role of AI and machine learning in terms of uh, how we build products. And it's not just about like 
companies that use AI and machine learning, that's that's like become like oxygen in the air. It just exists. But what does it really mean for us as humanity? Like, does it mean software engineering as a discipline goes away because machines can now write better software than we can? Does it mean abstract art goes away because like Dali can, you know, produce better art than we can and faster and in so many different nuances? That to me, you know, it's still in the early innings, but how that gets shaped and how that evolves over time is also going to be a fundamental, is going to have a fundamental impact on humanity. And, I, and I'm spending a lot of time, not from, just from an investing standpoint or investment opportunity standpoint, but also sort of philosophically, what does it mean for us? Uh, and, and that really piques all kinds of taste buds in my mind, if you will. I love that. And you also um, made a distinction recently between technology-enabled initiatives and technology-led. Can you say mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, just about everything these days is technology-enabled. Uh, you know, if, if you want to have a cleaning service come to your house or someone to come move move your belongings from one place to another, like you go to a place like Thumbtack or Angie or, you know, any of the other myriad online sites, those are all technology enabled. They are, you know, connecting someone uh, who does physical work as the big part of what they're doing with you, but doing it in electronic, efficient fashion. Technology-led business are things that would not exist but for technology. So Uber would not exist without a mobile device and the ability to create apps on that. Now, you can say, well, I could always call and get an Uber. Well, that's called a taxi service. That can quite work as well for the rest of us, right? Uh, So that's really the distinction. And a lot of times, people conflate the two. And this is where you get not just valuation mismatch, but you also get expectation mismatch of what people within the company are doing. So being very aware that, look, This is a business that would exist with or without technology, but being technology enabled makes it more efficient and effective and value additive that creates additional margin that can go both to the provider of the service and the consumer of the service. And as a result, is a positive productivity cycle for the economy and a technology-led business, which is bringing a whole new set of products or services to market that would not even exist but for this particular technology. And as a result, has a completely different value creation profile. And as a result, could generate a lot more benefits for both the consumer and the supplier of that product or services. And hence, you know, generally will be worth a lot more eventually than just a technology-enabled service. Well, Deep, thank you so much for joining us today. And you have such actionable insights and wonderful stories that uh, you definitely have a book in you. I hope you write a book soon. Thank you. Uh, Let's watch this space and uh, from from your lips to uh, writer's ears, as they say. (laughs) Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks, Anna. Have a wonderful day. 